Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to talk about uh, a bunch of things today, uh, including the menorah, and then, um, God willing, we'll also talk about the, you know, one of my, my favorite things in the whole world to, to discuss um, is, is not just the, the first word of the Torah, but the, the first letter of the first word of the Torah. But I don't think we've ever discussed um, this aspect of it. Of course, the, the Torah begins with the letter Bays, but there's a dot in the middle of the letter Bays. And so we can, uh, God willing, discuss the dot in the middle of the letter Bays as well, because that's also very deep. So, um, and I, uh, yesterday, actually, I, I had the, the, the privilege of uh, hearing a, a talk from Rabbi David Aaron, and that's always uh, extremely special. And he said so many wonderful things, but I'll, I'll just tell you just uh, two things that just jumped to mind, just as sort of like, just wonderful, just appetizers, if you will. But um, they're, each is an entree. Um, one thing that he said was that, you know, we talk about very much the idea of um, taking the, the material in the world and, and, and spiritualizing it, right? So we want to sort of uplift the material, right? The, the physicality of the world. He said, but, he said, really, it's... It's, it's, it's about materializing the spiritual. <laughs> Meaning to say, taking all the ideas, like of whatever it is, of goodness, right? That's like a spiritual concept, and materializing it through acts of kindness. So, so it's, a different, it's a different perspective. You know, you have this sort of like, we live in this sort of like spiritual ecosystem where things are going up and, and things are coming down also. And it's not about just elevating things. It's also about taking like the greater good that's that's just exists in potential in the world and making it, you know, very real and, and, and concrete. So, so that that was a very nice um, that was a very nice thing he said. He also quoted the Ari, and he said that that um, that the Ari said that there is a uh, a verse from the Torah a Pasuk from the Torah, on your forehead, it's a new one every single day. And this is the verse that you have to live that day. So that's, and, he, and the Ari in his, you know, in his greatness, was able to, on his students, tell them what it was, and he would learn the first half with them, and then it was up to them to, to figure out the rest. But just as an idea that I found that absolutely fascinating because, you know, when we think about saying, okay, so I want to I do good, I want to live good, I want to live the Torah, you know, you kind of think of it just as, you know, just a, a general kind of thing. But the idea that every day there's a, a, a separate verse on your forehead, right? These are all very spiritual concepts, but nonetheless, that you're assigned, let's just kind of put it in those terms, that you're assigned this verse for you to live that day. So you're working through the entire Torah in a very real, very systematic way, right? So I, I don't know whether it goes sequentially or whether it's, you know, just given whatever the tikkun a person needs in their life, so there's a separate order. I have no idea how something like this would actually work, but it's, it's um, it just, to me, it was a, a fascinating concept. Um, he also said something uh, that, that very much struck me, which was he was uh, referring to just when you, when, when, when you talk to someone and, you know, the word God, he said, he said God, you know, he would get rid of the word God <laughs> because people have so much baggage um, attached to that word that it's very hard to have a discussion with someone when it, when it comes to it. Because everyone's bringing a whole lifetime of whatever, pain, disappointment, um, anger, or, or on the other side, you know, you know, very strong positive feelings, or perhaps going even further, fanaticism, you know? And, and it's hard to actually have um, a discussion where you're talking about the same thing even as you think that you're communicating with each other. 
which is very, very challenging, you know? I mean, I, I would be fascinated to know what percent of conversations take place where the people are actually discussing the same thing. I know most people leave conversations think that they've discussed the same thing. But I think probably the majority or perhaps the overwhelming majority of the time, two separate conversations are being had almost all the time. Almost all the time. And I think when it comes to a discussion like when we use the word God, it's probably happening 100% of the time. Because people have such very strong ideas about what that word means, what, what, what that concept is. So, so, um, uh, so Rabbi Aaron said that, you know, what if, if you're talking to someone who says they don't believe in God, so he said, well, that he would ask them, do you believe in good? Right? And he didn't make this point, but I love the idea that God and good are just basically a letter away. You know what I mean? And he says that the other person would, would most likely say that they believe in good. So he says, okay, so you believe in God. I, I, I believe in God. You believe in good. So let's try to, do you believe that there should be more good in the world? <laughs> He's like, the person would probably say, yes, I believe that there should be more good in the world. Okay, so let's figure out how we can make more good in the world. And he said that, that he would prefer to use the word um, uh, Hashem, which is, you know, when we talk Torah and things like that, more often than not, we'll use the term Hashem, which just means the name. That's the English translation of Hashem. And, you know, the, the, calling God the name is, is very sort of kind of mystical and sort of cryptic. But, uh, you know, on purpose, because the idea is to sort of enforce in our mind that whenever we're discussing God, right, that it's a concept that's beyond us. So it's appropriate to refer to him as the name, because it's sort of like, you know, we, we can't ironclad, you know, speak about God definitively. You know, I mean, we have the Torah, but at the same time, it's like we're human beings and we're finite and God is infinite. So there, there are limitations ultimately so it's, 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 it's good to use a, a, a term which just sort of approaches, you know, a, a name itself. Um, and he said that, that you know, when the, the main name of God, the name of God, is of course the, you know, in English we say the tetragrammaton, which means the four-letter name of God, Yudke Vavke, right? So that, that, that name means compassion. That name means love, right? So... So he was saying that um, someone was asking him, well, especially these chapters, these parshas that we're dealing with right now, you see like um, there are plagues and fires come down from heaven and all sorts of things like this. And someone was sort of like commenting that, you know, uh, it, it, it appears that, that God is manifesting himself, you know, in, a, in what seems to be like a vengeful way. Right. And, um, you know, sort of the old canard that, you know, the the vengeful God of the Old Testament. Right. You know, you hear that in, you know, places sometimes. And, and it's it's but the name that's being used is is Yudke Vavke. Right. That particular name of God, which means love. So he was saying he was he was quoting an author. And he said, well, what if this author, who's, you know, not, not uh, a believing person, um, uh, said, what if you took out all the mentions of God in, in, the, in the Torah and substituted the name Jerry? <laughs> right? And you just read the book, Jerry did this and Jerry did that, right? So, so it was a longer discussion, but, but Rabbi Aaron made this point, which again, I found just very compelling, that what if you substituted the word love instead? Every time you saw God, you put the word love there, right? And, and then, so in like, for instance, one of these incidents, instead of saying God got angry, right? What if it said love got angry? Like, how would you understand it then? It's, a, it's like a whole nother, 
whole other thing. And I, 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 I love that. I, I think that's fantastic because I think that's actually getting much closer to understanding what's going on in the Torah. You know, just the very concept itself that love could get angry, right? And, and I think that's a real thing. I think that's a real thing. You know, relationships are so complicated. And you have parental, you know, we're called God's children. So a, a, a parent can get angry at his child, right? But the parent still loves his child. And you say, well, wait a second. If the parent is angry at his child, the parent doesn't love his child. But we all know that that's false. And, 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 and that, that love and anger can simultaneously exist. And that there's no contradiction whatsoever. So, so now, then, now we get maybe a little bit more insight in, well, what have I done perhaps to do something that could arouse anger? Right? As opposed to, God, you're only supposed to be good, and now I'm experiencing pain, so the fault is with you. Right? I mean, it, it just begins a whole different, you know, exploration of, of the relationship. One of the things, you know, I've sort of referred to these talks as, as, as couples therapy between us and God, you know? And I think that that's a lot of what life is, you know, just it's... Because your primary relationship in this world, no matter how close you are to another person, your primary relationship is between you and God. Because everything else can go away. But as long as you are alive, and even after you're alive, that will never go away. So it's, it's so essential to get that relationship right. We have to get that relationship right. Because that is our primary relationship for our entire life. And beyond this life, forever, forever. It never stops. It never stops. Because when our soul leaves our body, then we're even in a deeper relationship. You know? I remember I, I was dating a girl once in college, and it was, a, it was a horrible relationship. And we were having this, like, very serious discussion. And, and I, remember, I remember we reached this very sort of, like, surprising conclusion, which is, Maybe what we need is not less of each other, but more of each other. <laughs> sort of like, let me stick my head further into the oven. That's the solution. But, <laughs> but anyway, in the, completely, in the completely opposite way, in the completely opposite way, when we leave this world, we think, okay, well, then that's the end. No, we get more of God. We don't get less of God. We get even more of God. So it's sort of like this relationship is like, it's only going to deepen. It's only going to deepen. So, so we have to have that in mind, you know? We have, like I say, we have to get it right. Um, so so uh, those, were, those were some of the highlights. And by the way, if you, if you want to hear more, I, uh, Rabbi Aaron has many, many uh, talks online and you can just look it up, Rabbi David Aaron, and he has also, um, he's authored a number of wonderful books. I would recommend starting with a book that he wrote called Endless Light, which is a, a really fine, 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 fine book, and, and wonderful sort of mystical um, introduction to Judaism as well. So it's, it, it works on a lot of levels, but it's, it's, an, it's an excellent book. And like all good books, it's clear and it's not long. So those are, otherwise, you know, they just look nice on the shelf. They don't get, they don't get read, you know, for the most part, or at least I'm talking for myself. Um, okay, so before before we get into a discussion of the menorah, I wanna I wanna just mention something, just because again, this is just a thought. This is from the the parsha that it just means a lot to me, and um, it's something I know I've I've discussed with people over the years, and it's. It's, it's touched them and, and me too. So, so let me just get that um, out. Which is one of the, I think, I think it's, I think you can make a case that it's, that, that the discussion of the clouds and, and how the clouds worked. Remember when we, when we left Egypt, we were surrounded by what were called the Anani HaKavod, 
which were the, translated in English as the clouds of glory. And it was this amazing divine gift that we received while we were in the desert that were, they were on all sides of us. And, um, and there were seven of them, okay? There was a, one above, one below, and then one on all four sides, okay? And then one that went before us, okay? And it said that it, it raised up valleys and it flattened hills, okay? So it, just to make the path smooth for us. So how we wrap our mind around that, these are all sort of like mystical ideas, miraculous things. But it was also, if, if you were around the clouds of glory, if, if people shot arrows at you, the arrows would bounce off. So there was, a, there, was, there was a form of actual protection as well, right? Um, and all sorts of amazing things. But the, the, and, and they protected us, of course, uh, from, the, from the sun, the burning sun in the desert, and everything like this. So, so as you know, we, we traveled for 40 years in the desert. It wasn't supposed to be that way, but, but, but that's the way it worked out. It was supposed to be a short trip, but it became a very long trip. Um, and, and, you know, it's funny, I'll just, I'll just tell you just as an aside, just because this, this teaching changed my life, very literally. Um, it was supposed to be, we were at Mount Sinai for one year. A lot of people don't know that. They think we got the Torah from Mount Sinai, and then we journeyed on. We stayed at Mount Sinai for one year. And then we went on. And it was supposed to be a short trip from Mount Sinai into Israel with Moshe leading us. And that was going to be it. That was going to be basically the end of days or, or the completion of the world, if you will. End of days has sort of like a spooky, kind of like apocalyptic kind of feel to it. But the idea is that the world itself, it's not just human beings that are evolving, but the world itself is evolving. And the world is evolving toward perfection. And that would have been the signal of sort of like the completion of the world, basically. Moshe leading Israel from Egypt, which represents exile, into Israel, which is redemption. So we were going to get there. And, um, you know, fascinatingly, this is just, it's just, you know, there's so much here. When, when we were walking through the desert like this, there was an Aaron, it was an, there was an ark, which held the tablets that we had gotten at Mount Sinai. Now, in this instance, and, and what was in there, because it was the broken tablets that was leading us, right? Which is so surprising. And there are different opinions, but that, that seems to be the main opinion from what, what I've gathered. That you had, like, the Ark of the Covenant, right? And then you had the broken tablets in front of, in front of us leading the way into Israel. Isn't that interesting? Because we had the whole tablets. So where were the whole tablets? Right, because remember, Moshe smashes the tablets initially, and then on Yom Kippur we get the completed tablets. Those were in another ark, and those were in the center of the encampment of the Jewish people. That was sort of like, if you will, the, the nuclear fuel rods, right? That was like right in the center of the camp. But on the one hand, it's sort of like, why were the tablets broken to begin with? Because we, we did the whole incident with the with the with the the sin of the golden calf, right? And then and then it says the Jewish people had a uh, they, they they had an existential crisis because the first statement on the tablets that were smashed was Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am God your God. So after they were smashed, the Jewish people wondered, is God still our God? Right? Maybe God has divorced us, so to speak. Right? Maybe God doesn't want to be our God anymore. And by the way, there's a pretty famous religion that says, yeah, that's exactly what happened. 
And we're like, no, that didn't happen. It's okay. Because a short time afterwards, after after the Jewish people are, they're, 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 you know, they're reaching back out to God and trying to repair the relationship, it's accepted. And we get the second tablets. And the first statement on the second tablets is, it's the exact same words as the first tablets, which is, I am God, your God. So, so the relationship never ended. Now listen to this. The Ishbitzer Rebbe says something. Remember, we're, we're, we're discussing all this because we're trying to figure out why on earth would we put the broken tablets in front of the encampment leading the way? If that was a reminder of something seemingly, you know, very troubling that we did. Why? You don't lead with that. You don't open with, I am divorced and bankrupt. But I'm really looking forward to getting to know you and, you know, you know, maybe you could buy me dinner. You know, it's like, this is our first date. I don't know that I want to open that way. You know, maybe, <laughs> might be a little later, maybe around dessert, we can get to that. <laughs> right? Like, why would we lead ourselves, like our calling card, be the broken tablets? This is strange. It's not only strange, but it, it would almost seem to bring an accusation upon us. Right? So, so listen to what um, the Ishvitzer Rebbe says. Something awesome. Something awesome. He says that you don't appreciate something until you lose it. That's very strong. It's very, very strong. So, you know, you see, God gave us the Torah. It wasn't like, it's not like when he gave us the Torah, he bought us lunch. It wasn't like, hey, you know, you want some t- You like the Dodgers? I got Dodger tickets. Like that wasn't the giving of the Torah. The giving of the Torah was the revelation of the blueprint of all of reality. That, that's giant and eternal and it never goes away. Remember we talked about giving the idea of giving a, a wedding ring, like, like Reb Shlomo talked about that as a mushal. talked about it about in terms of the land of Israel, but it applies to giving the Torah as well. So you come home and you see your wife isn't wearing a wedding, the wedding ring you gave her. And you say, where is it? And she says, well, you gave it to me. It's mine. I gave it to someone else. So on some level, that makes sense. Okay, I could understand it's her property. She could do with it how she wants. But there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that. And the reason is because as much as I gave it to you and that existed in one time space pocket where I gave it to you and you got it, really the idea of giving it to you was that I never stopped giving it to you. Right? And we wanted to say that was like the the circle of the ring itself. Is that it never actually stops. That moment of giving and receiving actually never stops. Right? So... So when God gave us the Torah, that wasn't just sort of like a one-time thing, like, I'm a nice guy, you know, let me buy you a drink. It wasn't, it wasn't that. It was the revelation of the blueprint of reality. So, so in order to really realize what you've got, so the Ishbitzer Rebbe is saying, you've got to lose it. You got to lose it, have it taken away from you. And then once it's taken away from you, then you understand, wow, that's my whole essence. That's my whole essence. I need it back. I want it back. I can't live without it. You know, with that in mind, it, 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 uh, it, it helps me to understand something. I didn't even think about this for, for many years. You know, it says... It takes, it says in the Gomorrah, in the Talmud, it says it takes a person 40 years to understand what their Rebbe is teaching them. Right? 40 years. So I don't know if it's been 40 years yet, but, but it was a long time since I heard Reb Shlomo say this. He said that, um, that 
there was uh, that when people asked him them when people asked him to marry them to perform the wedding right he would ask them can can you he would say to the 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 say the man can you live without her and he'd say to the woman can you live without him right and um and so he said that one time he gets a knock on the door and there's a couple there and the couple says you know will you will you perform the wedding and he says to the woman he says can you live without him and she goes yeah i could live without him and she laughs she was making a joke right and Rabbi Shlomo was like, can't do it, can't do the wedding. And it plunged her into like this very dark place. And she, she came back like a few days later, like she had been crying her eyes out. And she was like, how could I have said such a thing? How could I have said such a thing about my husband, my soulmate, right? So maybe, maybe when Reb Shlomo would ask the person, can you live without the other person? Maybe the idea was, if they already knew that they can't live without the other person, they don't have to lose the other person to begin with. In order to realize that they can't live without them. I just want to make sure we're communicating. When the Torah was given, the Ishbitzer Rebbe says, the reason why the tablets were smashed was so that we realized what it is that it was to begin with. That you only realize what you have once it's gone. Once it's gone, then we realized we need this. We, we have to have this. God, please give it back to us. And God did. But can you imagine, like, how could it be if, if, if every relationship, it only, the relationship only kicks in after you guys get separated and then you get together. Now the, now the relationship can begin. Like that would be a very inefficient, very painful system, right? But if someone asks at the very beginning before you get married, can you live without the other person? So you already know from the very outset, I can't, you don't need to lose them and then regain them. From the very beginning, from the very outset, you understand that you can't live without the other person. Then you don't have to go through the trauma of the, of the ups and the downs. I mean, there will always be ups and downs. But you don't have to go through that. If you realize from the very outset, I can't live without you. So I guess a question that we can maybe ask ourselves is, what, what are those things in our life that we actually can't live without? And I'm not talking about water and food and air. You know, Like it would be very interesting for every person just to take a moment to ask themselves, what is it? that I can't live without, or who is it that I can't live without? Right? Because that then can become a roadmap for how we lead the rest of our lives, right? So, so now let's get back to the question. The question is, how is it that that we're walking, we're traveling through the desert, we're trying to get to Israel. This is maybe the culmination of all of history at this point. And the thing that we have in front of us is an ark with the broken tablets, right? So now with all that discussion, maybe we can get another answer. Maybe that was our way of saying, God, we can't live without you, and we can't live without your Torah. Right? You hear? Do you hear that? We can't and and you know and and that and that I am broken without you. You know, there's there are different levels. There are different levels. We we talk about when you give when, when a person was counted in the census, they would give half a shekel. Right? And, and it says that God showed Moshe a vision of the shekel, and it was a half a shekel that was flaming, it was on fire. And a lot of the commentators say, why half a shekel? Because I'm half, and God's the other half. Or I'm half, and the community 
is, is, is the other half, okay? But you see, there's half a shekel. That's, that's one concept of there's something missing. And then there's something deeper, which is brokenness. Half a shekel is very neat. Brokenness is very messy. Right? I can know that I'm not complete without God. But that can also just be an intellectual understanding. But brokenness is that I understand in the depths of my heart that 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 I can't I can't even exist without him. That that's the level of brokenness. It's much deeper. It's much, much deeper. Um okay. So so Beloscha, that that's the name of this week's parsha. And and Rabbi Wolfson points out something very beautiful. In in most years, it, it, it happens not to be the case this year, but in most years we're reading Beloscha right before we're getting into the three weeks, which is leading up to Tishabav, which is the destruction of the temple and everything like that, this very the saddest period during the year. And so the spies went out to, to the land, they traveled, and, and so what's, what's interesting, Rabbi Wolfson points out something very beautiful, Beloscha starts by talking about the menorah in, in the Holy Temple, in the Beis Migdash, which of course shines light. So he said that here at the beginning of the spies, right, they're being handed, so to speak, the menorah in order to lead the way so that they can see properly. Right? Because the whole problem was with their eyes. How are they seeing the world? You know? How are we seeing each other? So here, here we have the, this shining menorah, which is, which is like this holy torch, which is going to show us like, how to go forward. Um, so I want to finish up the point about the, 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 the clouds. You know, We were talking about the clouds. So the clouds are surrounding us, and we're on our way. And if you look in the Torah itself, I think that I think that you can make a case that it's the single most repetitive section in the entire Torah. All right, I'm not going to read you the whole thing because you're going to nod off, but <laughs> really, because it's, it's genuinely it's genuinely repetitive. Um, but you'll see that there's something so amazing about its repetitiveness. But I just want to give you a flavor for how repetitive it is. Okay, so this is chapter nine, say um, verse. Uh, Verse 16, okay? And this goes on for quite a while. Um, so would, so would, it would always be. The cloud would cover it, meaning the, the tabernacle, the mishkan, and an appearance of fire at night. And whenever the cloud was lifted from atop the tent, afterwards the children of Israel would journey, and in the place where the cloud would rest, there the children of Israel would encamp. According to the word of Hashem, would the children of Israel journey, and according to the word of Hashem, would they encamp. All the days that the cloud would rest upon the tabernacle, they would encamp. When the cloud lingered upon the tabernacle many days, the children of Israel would maintain the charge of Hashem and would not journey. Sometimes the cloud would be upon the tabernacle for a number of days. According to the word of Hashem, would they encamp, and according to the word of Hashem, would they journey. It goes on and on like that. I, I just read a part of it, okay? There's, it's almost sing, it, it is singular in the whole Torah in terms of the excessive, seemingly on a superficial level, repetitiveness, right? So what's just to reveal, just to be repetitive, what's the, what's the essence? The essence is we're encamping in the desert. It was supposed to be a short trip, like we were saying, right? Turned out to be a very long trip. But we didn't travel around like the idea of the, the wandering Jew, Right? Where does that come from? Well, from a lot of places, like the fact that we've wandered from country to country for thousands of years. But it also comes from the idea of wandering around the desert. But we didn't wander around the desert for 40 years in a row. That's, 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 not, that's not accurate. We encamped in places for sometimes years at a time, and sometimes just days at a time. Okay? But it wasn't constant travel. Okay. So how did we know when to travel and when not to travel? So there was a divine sign. 
right? Which was there was a cloud, one of these clouds was over the, the tabernacle. And when it rested, that meant, okay, right, we're staying here. And when it lifted up, that meant it's time to go. And that was the divine sign. And then we didn't know where we were going. Then we would follow this cloud to the new place that we were going. Like very amazing, you know? Very amazing, really. You know, have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed, I've noticed this a lot of times in my life, which is that when you're driving to a new place, it takes much longer than when you're traveling home from that place. And it actually is an illusion because it's the same distance. But when you don't know where you're going, it's sort of like, you know, you're looking at the signs and you're hyper-focused, right? And did I miss it? And then you're convinced that you missed it, but then you see the sign, oh, I didn't miss it. So from that whole time when I thought I missed it to where I see I didn't miss it, it's triple anxiety, right? And then when you're driving home, it's like, I'm driving home. <laughs> it's like, it's not a problem. So, you know, it's like just we talk about um, mindfulness. Mindfulness. And it's sort of like, can you imagine probably during that 40-year period, probably every day you kind of looked over once, twice, or depending on how neurotic you were, 10, 20 times over at the cloud. Like, should I pack? Should I not pack? Are we going? Are we staying? Like day to day, you didn't know. You didn't know. And then how does that affect your relationship with the place? How does that affect your relationship with people, right? Like, I don't know that your neighbors would have necessarily been your neighbors in the next encampment. I mean, the tribes were all together, but would your neighbor necessarily be your neighbor? Maybe yes, maybe no, I don't know. And interestingly also, just as a, another detail, since we're talking about traveling through the desert, each of the, and this, is, this was not a small thing, the Torah itself spends several verses on this. This was like a very real thing. Each tribe had a flag and the flags had a certain holiness to them. You know, we, we tend to think of flags today as just sort of like these jingoistic, sort of like just national nationalistic, you know, opportunities for war, basically, you know. This is my flag, you know. But there was a flag. There were flags and they had a holiness to them. So, the idea of a flag is not so, not so simple, actually. And each of the tribes had different colors on their flag. So the idea of a rainbow, if you will, right, of all the colors coming together as one was a real thing that's in the Torah. And then there were different letters on the flags and that they were each pieces of God's name. And only when all the flags were together and you sort of read them in a sequential way, were you reading the name of God? Right? So you, you realize that um, all of us are pieces of God. That, that was one of the things that came from the flags. Um, and of course, just, in, just you know, one of the all-time great thoughts, that, uh, that how we encamped in, in the desert paralleled how the angels encamped in the heavens. So there was this parallel between the Jewish people's arrangement below and the angelic um, gatherings above. That, that, that was also... So, so, so how we marched was very, was, was very important. Um, okay. So... When the cloud lifted, we would go. When the cloud stayed, we would stay. But why all the repetitiveness? You could say that so simply, so, so concisely. Why, why all the repetitiveness in the Torah? So the Or HaChayim says something massive, which is he says that the reason why it's so repetitive is in order to give praise to the Jewish people and to their faith in God. How? So listen. He says that there were places where we encamped which were really good and that we wanted to stay in those places.
but that when the cloud went up, we followed God and we left even though we didn't want to leave. And he said that there were other times where we were in places that we really didn't like and we wanted to leave, but because the cloud hadn't lifted, we stayed as, a, as, a, as, as an act of faith in God. So, so all of these variations are different expressions of our belief and our attachment to, to God's guiding hand, right? And the reason why that means so much to me is because um, it feels like this is our life, you know? Meaning to say that we've all been in situations where it's like you're in a relationship that's like a really, for you anyway, a really good relationship. Or you're in a job, a work situation, which is really positive. Or you're living in a certain place in, in the world where, you know, a neighborhood or whatever it is, you, you really like it. And then the cloud, and then it ends. And then it ends. You know, no job, no, no boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is. No, no, um, you got you to gotta leave that place. So what just happened? And it's sort of like the cloud lifted. That's what just happened. The cloud lifted. And God is telling you, okay, we're going to the next stop. And, and, and the opposite. What about if you're in a really difficult place? You know, I hate this place that I'm in in my life right now. That, that is the clouds just sitting on top of the Mishkan, right? On top of the tabernacle. And it's, it's a divine call that we're not moving on to the next place till we figure out this place. However mysterious that is, right? Or uh, unless we continue to try and then we can always get a, a free gift which maybe, maybe we should talk about that now. <laughs> but I remember, I, remember, I've, I remember saying to different people over the years, you know, like after they experienced something, you know, painful, you know, that the cloud lifted. You know, it's, 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 it's time now to go to this new place, wherever it is, right? And I know I've said it to myself too. You know, it's, see, you know, because I'll tell you, what's the, what's the deeper problem? The deeper problem is when something doesn't go right in your life, you think God's abandoned you. And I think the reason why this resonates, at least with me, is because this shows you that when something ends, it's not God abandoning you. God is right there in your life 100%, but he's guiding you to another place because he wants you to be in this place now and that the relationship is still intact, and that the closeness is actually even, in a way, deeper, because God is actually now bringing you to the next place. And that's a sign of a, a, a deeper relationship, not, not, a, not, not an abandonment of the relationship, the opposite, the opposite. You know, it's like the... The, the abandonment of a relationship is you want to go, go. You want to stay, stay. What do I care? Do what you want to do. But if I tell you to stay, it's because I want you to stay. <laughs> if I tell you to go, it's not because I'm taking this away from you. I'm taking you to the next place. That's big. That's big. That's big. That's very big. Okay, so now... I don't know if we'll have time to talk about the menorah so much, but I want to talk about this next thing because, so what does it mean I'm being taken to the next place or whatever it is, or how do I get to the next place? Or maybe I'm stuck in this place and I want to go to the next place. How does it work? How does it work? So I want to tell you about the, the Afstraf Rebbe. So he's um, one of the greatest of the Hasidic masters. I guess maybe because of his name, the Afstraf Rebbe, he's not so much a household name, I don't know. <laughs> it's a bit hard to pronounce. I'm probably mispronouncing it anyway. But um, anyway, 
the capital of the Hasidic population of the world was in Poland, and the number one Rebbe in terms of numbers of Hasidim was the Geir Rebbe, and the number two Rebbe was the Afstrafser Rebbe. Okay, so that's in the capital of Hasidim, that's big, that's very, that's very big. Now, in terms of Jewish history, um, in the beginning of the Hasidic revolution, Rebbe's popped up all over the place, right? But as Hasidus sort of became more um, the norm, right? It became more dynastic. Meaning to say that if you wanted to be a Rebbe, you were a Rebbe basically because your father was a Rebbe at that point in Jewish history, okay? Now we're talking about late 1800s, 1900s, going forward, okay? So new Rebbe's didn't just pop up so much anymore. Especially someone to be a new Rebbe and be number two behind the Geir Rebbe in Poland. Very unusual. But that's who the Afstrafser Rebbe was. His father was a baker, okay? Um, and there's a famous Torah that's um, story that's told about him, which is that he went to this place, the... It was just kind of a, a known thing that the Rebbe's often would go to these um, these mineral springs because I guess they felt that there, there was they, they were therapeutic and the waters were healing and um, there was this particular spa you know where they where they several Rebbe's had gathered and so they said you know let's go around and we'll each say a Torah a teaching in our father's name right because all their fathers were Rebbe's. So they got to him. Remember, his father was a baker. So they said, you know, and what, what, what Torah do you say in your father's name? And he said, well, my father was a baker. And he said that um, an oven whose door remains closed retains its heat much more than an oven whose door remains open. That was the teaching that he shared. <laughs> so, so what does it mean? Well, I just tell you one level. You know, a person's like an oven, and your desire is like the fire, and the door is your mouth. And if you just keep on talking about stuff all day, all the heat goes out. <laughs> You know, I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you've had an intense spiritual experience and you've shared it with someone and then all of a sudden it just, it's like someone just drained your bank account. <laughs> it's like somehow it was gone. Just the act of talking about it. I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you're working on a project and you talk about this idea and now you've, and the person says, what a great idea. And now you have no, no no passion left to actually write it, right? Because the door to the oven let out all the heat. <laughs> um, so the Avstraf Sarevi, now, if I told you that there was a man who fasted for 40 years, now what does that mean to fast for 40 years? That means you eat a little bit at night. If I told you that there was a person who actually fasted, a Jewish man who fasted for 40 years, a great spiritual leader, you would say, well, maybe 2,000 years ago, or maybe in the times of the prophets or something like that. Maybe. I don't know. Possibly. So this was 100 years ago. And it was known. It was documented. Like, everybody knew. He fasted 40 years. 40 years. 40 years. Like it's it's amazing that 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 you know there's not a picture of this man in everyone's like taxi cab right and it's or something like that you know in, in every pizza restaurant right how is there not a picture of this man right so so I'm going to tell you uh, and by the way just just a halachic sort of interesting point you're not allowed according to Jewish law to fast on Shabbos. There's, there's, one, there's, there's one exception, or, or let me just make the point. If you fast on Shabbos, you have to fast again for having fasted on Shabbos. 
Okay? So that wasn't a problem for him. He would fast on Shabbos, but he was fasting all the time anyway. So he would always do his fast for fasting on Shabbos. By the way, why, where is it ever permissible to fast on Shabbos? If a person has like a horrific dream, and they're so terrified by this dream, then it's permissible to fast on Shabbos because the reason is because you're getting spiritual enjoyment on some level or spiritual sense of accomplishment for fasting on Shabbos. So in other words, you're still partaking in, in a bit of a weird way, but in a way of the joy of Shabbos because you're, you're feeling as though you're getting, you're ripping up this bad decree against you. So there's a sense of joy and satisfaction in that. So there is some oneg, some, some joy of Shabbos taking place, but then you have to fast for having fasted on Shabbos, right? Because that's not optimal. And it says that the Ger Rebbe, the Ger Rebbe would come to his bed and beg him to stop fasting on Shabbos, that he shouldn't do that. And he said, I, I have to do it. I have to do it anyway. So, anyway. So, with that in mind, don't you want to hear a Torah, a teaching from the Afstraf Sarevi? <laughs> so, I'm, 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 I'm learning, the, I'm learning uh, a sefer of his, or at least part of it anyway, the, the beginning of it. And it, it's like pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of discussing every time the word eyes are used in the Torah. Right? Like, what does it mean? And he's, it's just, it's, it's amazing. It's just amazing. It's, it's heavenly. It's heavenly, as you would imagine. It's heavenly. So, so he talks about it at, at one point. He talks about something just very, very interesting. It's his, and you see kind of the creativity here at work of, of the Hasidic masters in terms of how they deal with the Talmud and things that would sound legalistic on, on the surface level, like how there's a spiritual component to it as well. So there's a discussion, it's actually a machlokas, it's actually a debate in the, in the Gomorrah. What if a person owns a piece of land? So I'm making up these numbers. This is in Baba Basra. So what if you have like, say, I own a thousand acres, okay? And in the middle of, of the land, there's a pit meaning like a, a, you know, a ditch, okay? Now, those ditches were valuable to people back in the day because they would use them for storage, okay? So imagine I have a pit and someone wants to buy the pit from me, okay? So I, I sell them, I sell them the, this big hole in the ground, right, which they can use for commercial purposes. Now, here's the debate in the, in the, in the Talmud. Did you also sell the person access to the pit? Meaning to say, can they walk on your land? It's your property. Did you also sell them property rights leading to the pit so that they can walk to the pit? Or is that a separate negotiation? You see, this is all real estate law, right? From thousands of years ago. So... So listen to this. They say that when someone does a business transaction, the person has a bad eye. What does a bad eye mean in this context? It means that everything is a la carte, right? Can you imagine you like say, let me take you out for lunch, right? And, and then the person orders a burger and they, then they order a soda. You say, hold on, friend. I, what's with the soda? <laughs> You know, <laughs> I'm buying you a burger. I didn't say anything about the soda. So everything, when it comes to, so one opinion in the, in the Talmud is when it comes to a business deal, everything is a la carte. You buy the pit, mazel tov, that's the pit. Who told you you can walk on my land to the pit? That's a separate negotiation. Now listen to how deep this is. This world is called a corridor. Right? We're talking about walking to the pit, the, that access lane, or let's use the word corridor. Okay? This world is a corridor to the next world. The next world, everyone has a share in. But this world, 
What are you getting in Olam Hazeh from God? None of it's guaranteed. There are no guarantees. There are no guarantees. Okay? So that's, that's, one, that's, that's one model. Okay? In other words, every gift, every blessing in this world is a la carte and it has to be earned. That's one model. Now there's a second model that the, that the Talmud then discusses, which is, what if I give you the pit as a gift? Right? I'm giving you this big ditch and it's a gift. Do, do the access rights come with that? And everyone agrees yes. Because when you're giving someone a gift, you're giving them from a good eye. And with the good eye, it's not a la carte. Like, oh, let me take you out for lunch. Hey, is it okay if I order a soda? I said, I'm taking you out for lunch. Of course, of course a soda comes with that. You want some fries, some dessert, whatever you like. I said, I'm taking you out for lunch. It's a gift. When something is a gift, then other things come with it. So, of course, the corridor leading to the pit also comes with the purchasing of the pit itself. So, again, what did we say the corridor is? That's this world. Okay, so now he talks about the two eyes, and he does so many variations with what the two eyes mean in, in different contexts from different verses of the Torah. So, in this verse, he's interpreting the two eyes, one being Yira and one being Ava. One being awe of God, and remember the awe is a spectrum. The lower aspect of Yira is fear of God, right? I, I want to do this so that I don't get punished. But then the higher aspect is awe. I'm like, my mind is blown at the greatness of God, right? So there's Yira and then there's Ava. When someone is coming from Yira, especially from the lower place of Yira, where it's just like, God, we're in a contractual relationship. I'm doing this, you do that. I'm doing this, you do that. Then everything is a la carte, and you don't get access to the pit, which is olamazeh, which is this world. Because everything is like, you know, God, my relationship with you is strictly business. <laughs> but if someone enters into a relationship with God out of love, then it's a whole other relationship. Then it's okay. Then you get then then you get this and you get that. But it's not on a contractual level anymore because the relationship, the paradigm, is completely different. Now it's on a love level. So now, since it's a love relationship, okay, yeah, of course you get this. Okay, you messed up. All right, you'll fix it. I'll still give you that. Right. So you get access. You get access, which is this world, because it's a love relationship. And he says that the word to give, and this, this blew my mind, the word to give comes from the word um, matana. Like natan means to give. But that it comes from the word matana, which is a gift. And this was big for me as an aside. He didn't spell this out, so this is just me talking. Because a lot of people get tripped up because it says, if you do this, then the rain is going to fall in its proper time. And it seems like the Torah is describing a contractual relationship with God. But if you realize that the word give there is from the word matan, which is gift, you realize, no, it's just talking about gifts. Because it's, it's starting from the standpoint that this relationship is going to be a love relationship. So, so that, that resolves like a, actually an enormous question. And it's off, just off to the side, you know. So, so, so we have to, uh, again, it all comes back down to the relationship, you know, so, so, so we gotta, we gotta work it out and, um, and, you know, uh, a lot of times, you know, you can't get to the place of love, especially if things have been complicated and when is it never not complicated, <laughs> um, um, so you can't get to a place of love without forgiveness and that means forgiving God and that also means forgiving yourself right and um, 
And it also means being willing to start again and, and open to that. And, um, and so we should just, uh, we should just have a lot of, a lot of happy occasions, a lot of good things. Okay.